This is Convo by Design with a special Throwback Thursday episode of the podcast. This is from the West Hollywood Design District, uh, originally recorded in 2014 with a really fun conversation called Designing for the Red Carpet. Because it's award season, I thought this would be a good time to look back at this chat, who's, as its name suggests, that it is an in-depth look at the red carpet, the fashion, and the events themselves. It's about fashion, the red carpet, and our connection to celebrity, glamour, and design. Interiors and home decor are being influenced heavily, and like never before, by fashion, and nowhere is, one might argue, fashion more explored talked about, scrutinized, and copied than on the red carpet. The West Hollywood Design District sponsored and presented a wonderful talk series called Diem, Design Intersects Everything Made. Uh, Its run lasted about four years, beginning in 2014, and all were curated by KCRW's Francis Anderton and Mallory Roberts Morgan. This talk was from 2014 and featured Merle Ginsburg, senior style writer at The Hollywood Reporter, Marcy Medina, uh, West, Coast Bureau, West Coast Bureau Chief of Women's Wear Daily, and Monica Corcoran Harrell, consultant and New York Times bestselling author. This talk was moderated by Bronwyn Cosgrave, author and fashion professional. This was hosted by WeHo Design District icon and fixture Mary Ta from the opening day of Mass Beverly, the showroom she co-owns and operates with her husband, Lars Oliver Hipko. This conversation is about design, style, fashion. It was first aired in March of 2015, and I hope you enjoy it. If you like this episode of the podcast, and I hope that you do, why not subscribe? It's fast, easy, it's free, and uh, we appreciate it. And then when you subscribe, you'll get all of our episodes uh, automatically your iPhone or whatever smart device you happen to be using. Also, please follow us, the, uh, our YouTube channel. We've got over 150 videos from some of your favorite Convo by Design episodes, and you can follow us uh, on social. We're out there just like you. Search Convo by Design. Thanks for listening. Good evening. My name is Bronwyn Cosgrave. I'm a fashion historian. I was generously offered uh, to chair this panel by Mallory Roberts Morgan, who deserves a round of applause for curating today with her friend Frances, whose surname escapes me right now. But Mary, thank you for offering us your stunning space. Um, I love Los Angeles. I lived here for three years, on and off, writing a book which is called Made for Each Other, Fashion and the Academy Awards. It's the first fashion history of the Oscars. It came out in 2005 when the red carpet was really about the Oscars, the Golden Globes, maybe throw in the Cannes Film Festival, not much more. Our talk this evening is really design influences everything made for the red carpet. It's as simple as that. Um, And when I thought about the red carpet, I'm gonna read you a list of actually what it is. Um, The Golden Globes, the BAFTAs, the SAG Awards, the Oscars, the Cesars, Tribeca Film Festival, Cannes, Venice, the MTV Awards, the Emmys, TIFF, the New York Film Festival, Palm Springs, Sundance, Berlin, the Grammys, the MTV Awards, not to mention the coffee run, a trip to Gelson's or Bristol Farms, 
and the walk from the limo to late night talk show green rooms. So it has exploded over the last 10 years. Um, Mallory asked me to gather together a panel of experts and I can kid you not, I have the three world experts on the red carpet. They have been observing it over the last few decades. I met them all personally doing so and I would like them to introduce themselves and just give us a little background about who you are and what you do. Merle Ginsburg. Hi. Thank you. Um, Merle Ginsburg is my name, and I am currently the senior style writer at The Hollywood Reporter, which is really, you know, ground zero for where Hollywood and the red carpet come together. That is what we do. That is all that we do. And we do it really from the inside out. But I go back to, I mean, I started in New York writing about music for Rolling Stone and The Village Voice, and I was a producer at MTV. But then my life started when I got into fashion. And I started working in the West Coast Bureau of Women's Wear Daily in 1992. My first Oscars was 1992. Save so, some of that. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> but I do remember being out there and... Don't talk about it yet. Okay, okay. <laughs> And, uh, okay, Women's Wear, Harper's Bazaar, and lots of other magazines. And so I've been doing the red carpet for 22 years. Marcy Medina. Uh, I am Marcy Medina. I'm the West Coast Bureau Chief of WWD, a.k.a. Women's Wear Daily. Um, we are a 104-year-old trade paper covering the fashion industry. And um, I've been out here on the West Coast since 1998. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, which is when I had the pleasure of meeting Merle Ginsburg. We together? Yeah, we overlapped for about three or four years, maybe more, at WWD. And so know each other very well from the red carpet. Squished together. Exactly. We've been very close for many years. Still are. And um, what can I say? I love, I love watching these women come down the carpet and seeing them at Bristol Farms across the street and everywhere else. Um, it, it really is a really fun and incredible place to be and a fun thing to do. Monica. Hi there, my name is Monica Corcoran Harrell and I write for any number of publications. I cover fashion for Deadline Hollywood, the red carpet, but I've also written a few books more on the other side, the backstage, if you will. Um, I recently wrote a book with Rachel Zoe, so we got into the business of styling and her own personal style. And I also co-authored a book with Janie Bryant, who's the costume designer of Mad Men. So I've seen that side as well. And Brahman and I were talking about this earlier, we'll touch on it later. Costume designers are now also designing for the red carpet at times. Um, I've known Merle and Marcy for many years, and it's funny, when I think about us on the red carpet, I think of us as war reporters. <laughs> And I'm, I don't want to belittle war reporting in any way, but there is a lot of elbowing and hip checking that goes on when you're trying to get someone to interview. I think we've all always been gracious. You're in the trenches. <laughs> and it's only become more so. I mean, the red carpet has, I mean, it's like the movie Jaws. You're going to need a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger red carpet because nowadays there's a red carpet everywhere and it seems like an endless parade of actors and actresses walking down it. So I'm excited to be here and talk about it. 
So I would like, to, if everyone could please silence their cell phones and any other mechanical gizmos that might beep or whatever. Um, I'm here to give a historical perspective on how this happened. Um, I will do it as briefly as possible. <laughs> I could hold the floor for a good two hours. I'm going to start with someone like Elizabeth I, Henry VIII's daughter, pageantry. I'll fast forward to 1929, Louis B. Mayer, um, instigated the Oscars as an awards ceremony really to champion the film studios who um, made California the center of the world's movie making. No one wanted to go. No woman wanted to sit around on an evening with these fat cat studio moguls. And it wasn't really until, um, <clears throat> it wasn't until 1939 when David O. Selznick, who was the son-in-law of Louis B. Mayer, swept the Academy Awards with 13 Oscar nominations for Gone with the Wind that it really mattered from a fashion perspective. Because what David O. Selznick did was he hired a designer to dress Vivian Lee, Olivia de Havilland. I don't think Hattie McDaniel was in the mix, but he wanted his stars looking red carpet perfect, not just for the film's um, premiere in Atlanta, but also at the Oscars. He hired someone named Irene Lenz Gibbons, who was the in-house designer at Bullock's Wilshire, which was the classiest department store out in Los Angeles, and she also freelanced for the studios. Vivian Lee won the Oscar for Best Actress and really was the benchmark. She not only had a dress that was made exclusively for her, it fit her, she looked amazing from every angle, but she was also wearing Van Cleef and Arpel jewelry that her husband, I think he was her boyfriend at the time, um, uh, Laurence Olivier gave her. So she had it down and uh, you could go forward, I would say, to Marlene Dietrich in 1947. The new look came along. She was enamored with Kristen Dior, and in 1951, when she was presenting the Best Foreign Film Prize, she had Kristen Dior made a make a dress especially for her. What's the lesson? Get something made if you want it to be memorable. And at that point, really, the red carpet divided. Um, it was always about the Oscars, and it suddenly became about fashion designers and costume designers jostling for supremacy on the red carpet. And the phenomenal thing, I think, that costume designers, uh, Edith Head, Gilbert Adrian, Travis Banton, Ori Kelly did for a star going to the Oscars, that was that they understood their identity. They had a really strong relationship with the star. They knew what their body was like. They knew how to dress them full stop. They also would occasionally convey a sense of the character that they were nominated for so that the, that image would carry on in photographs. Um, along with that, they also manifested the spirit of the studio, and that was Paramount Polish, MGM grandeur, and really that stark quality that Warner Brothers films were known for. I would push forward to the early 70s with Halston, and he really came along after Hubert de Givenchy and Audrey Hepburn, Mark, Mark Bohan, who dressed a handful of designers on behalf uh, of stars on behalf of Kristen Dior. And Halston really dressed new Hollywood, as it was known in the 70s. This very liberated woman, um, Angelica Houston, Liza Minnelli, Lauren Hutton and made them look completely glamorous and also introduced an American sensibility to the red carpet. 1987, I'm almost done. Cher came along, 
in Bob Mackey. And something wonderful that I remembered was that the fashion consultant, it was actually 1986, um, the fashion consultant of the Oscars that year was Nolan Miller, whose studio, the late Nolan Miller, the costume designer and designer, whose studio was across the street. And I went to introduce, interview him there um, 10 years ago. And he told me the story. He wrote a letter to everyone going to the Oscars saying, I want everyone to look their best. He was a very sort of... Um, he was a dandy, really. Um, he said, you know, I want everyone to put their best foot forward. Cher got the letter, ripped it up, went to see Bob Mackey. He designed her this crazy mohawk costume that you know, referenced her Indian heritage and also that sort of punk sensibility that was going on at the time for the last 10 years. I think really Cher signified that you could wear anything on the red carpet. We have the meat dress, I'll say that again, the meat dress that Lady Gaga wore and also of course Bjork's fantastic swan outfit. You don't see that anymore, really, at the Oscars, but it's there. You can still do it. Then we get to 1989, and I'm going to hand it over to Merle. Suddenly, the Oscars and award ceremonies that were coming up started to be about brands. And Merle, I'd like you to explain what happened. I'll never forget going to the Oscars for Women's Wear Daily in 1992, and I was screaming to everybody, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? And other reporters were yelling at me, saying, why are you asking that? Who cares? And the Academy was really angry. They're like, this is not a fashion show. We don't want people asking that. The very next year, I was still screaming, what are you wearing? What are you wearing? And suddenly the other reporters were running up to me going, how do you spell Armani? Like, it seemed to change... That's a famous quote, right? <laughs> it seemed to change in, you know, I'd, it could be one year, it could be two or three, but Giorgio Armani suddenly became the king of Europe in the 80s and revolutionized fashion by taking it out of the hands of Paris and New York and doing these slouchy suits for men and putting women in all these neutral stone colors, paring everything down. In the 90s, particularly the early 90s, was all about this Belgian, Italian minimalism, simplicity. Not a lot of fit, like a lot of sort of long shift dresses. Anti-fashion. Yeah, exactly. Coming out of punk in a way, and, but glamorous and beautiful fabrics and very expensive. And suddenly Armani, who was dressing a lot of Hollywood agents, because all these men wanted to wear Armani suits, realized, why not dress the stars too? And he developed personal relationships with the women who were really hot at the time. Jodie Foster, Annette Bening, um, Michelle Pfeiffer, and also with Richard Gere. And so these were kind of the happening stars of the moment. The year that Jodie Foster won the Oscar for Silence of the Lambs, she was wearing, I kid you not, the ugliest dress I have ever seen. <laughs> a blue. Would, yes. She bought strapless. it. She said something about I was walking down the street in Paris and I saw it in a window. It, it was ill-fitting. It was poofy. It didn't look like her. The next year, she was streamlined in Armani, like I don't know if it was a dress or a tuxedo suit, but it was perfectly fit for her body, and it was a different person. And from then on in, she wore Armani nonstop. Same with Michelle Pfeiffer and Annette Bening, and they sometimes wore tuxedos, which was incredible, the idea of a woman wearing pants to the Oscars, or beautiful gowns. And then I remember Julia Roberts showing up when she started to be hot, and she was wearing a Richard Tyler 
like very early 1990s shift dress that was very kind of loose and Belgian. But suddenly brands, Armani started it all. Richard Tyler, who was an LA designer, jumped in the game. And then all of a sudden, Johnny Versace, you know, realized that if you have the Oscars, which is, you know, now it's billions of people watching on TV, then it wasn't nearly that. But it was still pre-internet, the biggest international event that there could be, fashion-wise, because Cannes wasn't televised. Um, Marcy, I want to throw it over to you. Um, and really, the it's fair to say that the red carpet became this alternative runway. How did it work behind the scenes? How did this actually, were um, designers targeting you know, the stars that they wanted to, wanted to dress did, who, who was making it happen for them out here? Um, it was very behind the scenes, Bronwyn, as you said, and Merle, you know, sort of began this conversation with Armani. They were one of the first to really have a, quote, behind the scenes team out here and still do, um, you know, making those things happen, going to every event, reaching out to the managers, the agents, um, you know, watching every movie just as fervently as you would if you were a film critic at, you know, at Variety. I mean, these people who work in fashion have to keep track of these things too because it's always every designer's question. When I meet with people from all over the world when they're in LA for something, they say, who do you like? Who are the most up-and-coming actors? Who should we be dressing? Um, so therefore, I watch every movie and every television show because we all know... TV stars of today, maybe the movie stars of tomorrow. I mean, it really starts at the beginning. Um, so there is a lot of just due diligence, as you said. There's a lot of um, sort of curation and personal taste, I think. But List, um, list making alone. Exactly. Sure. Merlin and I have made many lists together for Women's Wear Daily. Um, so, you know, that's, that's sort of how it happens. And, you know, people can either, um, sometimes they'll, they'll have a staffer out here, as I mean, some of you in the audience I know do this, um, or they'll send sort of an ambassador from their Paris or Milan headquarters to, to be out here during the year, during busy times, or even just, you know, throughout the year, calling this information, getting it back to Europe, getting it back to New York. Um, and obviously the designers such as Richard Tyler, Nolan Miller, the people that were based here had the advantage because they were here, you know, like I said, they could be at the supermarket with some of these people. So, you know, please wear it, my work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so that's sort of, um, I guess to answer, does that answer your question? Sure. Yeah. In terms of behind the scenes, but, in, uh, you would ask too about fashion, uh, the, the Oscar sort of becoming a runway. I mean, it. The Oscars have been televised for years and much more so, I mean, earlier than runway shows were. I mean, that kind of, that kind of footage, I mean, I remember you had to wait until Saturday morning at 10 a.m. to watch this stuff a week later on Style with Elsa Clench on CNN. That was the only time you could actually see a model on video walking down a runway. I mean, otherwise you had to wait three months to see these things in vogue. Or, you yeah. know, for the 20,000 subscribers that Women's Wear had at the time, you know, maybe could see them four days later. Yeah, exactly. So I think it, so the Oscars was, once people started to care it, what was the most immediate place for these designers to have worldwide exposure to the two billion people that watch the Oscars around the world? Um, so it just happened. And I remember uh, 
the sort of seminal times for me were at my first job at Vogue in New York between 1995 and 1998. And Bronwyn, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was in 1998, the year that Uma Thurman wore the lilac Prada dress. Around that. Around right. So she was nominated earlier, for think, her actually. role. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, in Pulp Fiction, which was the year before in 1997. <laughs> um, you know, and that was something that we all identified, you know, the black wig and the bangs. And so here she is showing up at the Oscars in her natural self, this sort of ethereal Swedish blonde former model turned it girl actress in, in what was at the time, it was so shocking in its simplicity. It was just a, a pale lilac chiffon, you know, double layered scoop neck gown, just an A-line gown. There was no embellishment, no nothing. And she had this perfect matching chiffon, but it wasn't even a wrap. It was almost just like this little thing Brand, around brand, her branded, shoulders. Branded by Prada, but actually made by Barbara Tiefank. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> because the story behind that dress is that Prada sent a dress, not, and this is an interesting thing about the difference, and we'll get, we'll get to this with Monica in a minute, but the difference between models, and I think it took a while for designers to cotton on to this, was that actresses were a lot different and rarely sample size, had huge long bodies, mm -hmm. and the dress allegedly that Prada had sent to Uma Thurman was way too short. The material was too hot I for her know, to wear in Los 5 Angeles. 11, I believe. Yeah, in, but in it was sorted out in a costume shop in L.A., but Which is another thing that where most of, if you wonder, you think about these dresses being made in some atelier in Paris, a lot of them get sorted out at Ella House of Tailoring on La Cienega. I mean, that's where they actually get put together. They come here in a FedEx box, and there's a Russian master tailor here who's actually sewing the dress. But Versace actually sends, you know, the tailors to the Beverly yes. Or people do that now. You could walk in and Chanel does the same thing and see all these little ladies sewing a gown. I think, I think actually Valentino started doing that with Sharon Stone when she was so picky about everything she was wearing that they would send, and he so wanted to dress her that he would send over like the tailor from Italy. Mm -hmm. But um, Ma thank you, Marcy. Monica, you know, swooping out of nowhere, I would say, certainly I was hanging out at Decades on Melrose Avenue for the BBC and I met someone named Rachel Zoe Rosenzweig, who <laughs> then became Rachel Zoe. Um, you wrote a book with Rachel. It's now a bestseller. It became a bestseller in the New York Times. What did she do aside from, what did she do? <laughs> that was different and interesting that wasn't being done, which basically fueled the Rachel Zoe industry. I think that Rachel was very savvy in that she pegged a signature look, and we all know it. It's Bianca Jagger at Studio 54. It's this effortless, 70s, breezy, L.A. style. And she gave the actresses that she dressed that image. Um, instead of just dressing them in a beautiful dress, she created um, an image. She made them into... Um, maybe not these icons, but she created something that was a touchstone for us. It was a very cool look, and she branded it, trademarked it, went on to create her own collection, and, and she has, you know, a cl collections as a designer, and she's followed suit and, you know, kept consistent with that look. So I think, in addition, she also accessorized her clients very well, 
and it's like every blogger now is, or every website has a fashion critic. It could be Grandpa Ernie in the basement, but somebody is writing about fashion, and they're writing about the accessories and the shoes and the bags. And I think Rachel um, wisely put that package together. And again, it was always consistently in that image of, again, Bianca Jagger, someone who would be hanging out with Halston. She really made these actresses look glamorous. And I think she gave them clothes that are easier to wear in their wearability. I mean, they're these sort of caftans. Not everything was fitted. You didn't see actresses, you know, sort of in tight dresses, feeling uncomfortable. It was this look that I think was easier to carry off. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. oh, I just wanted to bring up also, Marcy, what we were saying about um, the red carpet becoming the red runway. I think it's fascinating. Actresses are in our homes um, when we watch television. We watch movies and we fall in love with these characters. So unlike models who um, we don't know and they have bodies that we'll never attain or maybe even want to attain, these actresses feel like people we know. So it's become even more so of a runway because we feel like these are our friends. It's like going up to a girlfriend and saying, what are you wearing? I can get that. I don't know that you would run up to a supermodel and ask that, but when you see it on television, we feel like we know these women. We love them. Or even more surreal if you bump into them at the governor's ball. (laughs) (laughs) Merle, um, you knew the late Lorenz Scott, who started out as a stylist. She was the fashion consultant for the Oscars, I can't remember when, at the turn of the new millennium. But she had a very interesting point of view and, and was creating Nicole Kidman and Sarah Jessica Parker in her, li- in her, in her image. Very much. Um, and actually before Rachel Zoe, Lorenz Scott invented herself as this you know, mega Hollywood stylist. She was incredibly glamorous, as we now know, because we've all read everything about her. She was what, 6'2", and she walked around in gowns all day. She was living in a fantasy, and she managed to, you know, when you have Nicole Kidman and Sarah Jessica Parker, the hottest actresses, arguably, of the 90s, and even into the millennium, um, and and they were both are very thin, and they both know a lot about clothes, and the one year that Nicole Kidman wore this John Galliano for Dior chartreuse chinoiserie dress, it was... So fashion forward. Of course, Women's Wear put it on the cover, and we'd seen it, in a, or something like it, in a couture show. So I knew what was coming. Everyone else was sort of horrified, and Joan Rivers was even like, that color makes me puke. Um, she just, she didn't get it, clearly. But um, Loren also dressed Julianne Moore, several other people, and she made people into glamazons. I mean, Nicole Kidman, you know, already a glamazon, but Sarah Jessica kind of took her Sex and the City character even further. They all got to wear the most desired things, which was John Galliano for Dior and Chanel, and Chanel Couture, and they wore Couture, which... That was the early days of somebody making you something just for you, for the Oscars, because before that it came out of collections. So to wear something only made for you was a very big deal. Mm. And she was also a costume designer, actually. And what is it, Monica, that you think a costume designer can bring to a red carpet look? You were mentioning that Janie Bryant has done work. Right. Um, Well, there are certain actresses, you know, that defy their bodies defy a sample size. Um, 
an example would be Christine Hendricks, who's beautifully voluptuous. And I know that Janie Bryant has designed for her on the red carpet because, as you said earlier, she knows her anatomy so intimately. Uh, I just interviewed Mindy Kaling from the Mindy Project for a story, and she was telling me that her costume designer, Sal Perez, who does a great job on that show, has been designing for her. So I think you'll see more and more actresses that maybe can't turn to designers to get something sent to them, or would rather work with someone who, again, they feel comfortable with, who knows their curves, making them pieces. I mean, you know, Edith Head did that too. Absolutely. Uh, so I think we could see more of it. As, mm. as the profile of costumes, costume designers rises, and they'll emphatically tell you they're not stylists, they are designers. So. I think they'd love to get into that game, and Janie Bryant is designing now shoes and dresses, so it's an open field. And, and certainly, I think back to the Prada, um, Marcy, that you mentioned that Uma Thurman wore, and I remember Barbara Tevank telling me about the making of that dress and what she and why she got the wrap and very simple jewelry and the right kind of handbag because what a costume designer knows, which sometimes I think... I think they know today, stylists, but I don't think they knew back then was that you had to look like perfection from every angle or else you would have the late Joan Rivers on your... Right. Not on your side. <laughs> and I would just say even a costume designer knows when she's dressing, for instance, Janie Bryant dressing the three principles of Mad Men, she knows that in a crowd these women have to stand out on screen. So when they're dressing someone for the red carpet, they know that the competition is stiff there as well. So they're choosing either colors or silhouettes that they think will stand out on camera. And it really is all about on camera. People aren't at the Oscars. They're looking at pictures or watching mm. it on television. Mm -hmm. So they have a decided advantage in that way. I think something really interesting that happened uh, with the onset of Lorenz Scott, and actually I think Rachel Zoe didn't go there, but it was this phenomenon of fashion lines that came directly from the red carpet, Marquesa. Do you want to talk about, you know, she was going to the Oscars with Harvey Weinstein, Georgina sure. Chapman. So Tell as, us yeah, about that. All of you, I'm sure, know uh, Marquesa is designed by two women, Georgina Chapman and Karen Craig, and Georgina happens to be married to Harvey Weinstein. So, you know, go figure if your girlfriend and now wife, you know, is designing some beautiful evening gowns. You've got a suggestion for every actress that's in your movie, <laughs> a suggestion to wear um, to the Oscars or to some important red carpet. So, I mean, it's a great synergy, as you might call it. Um, you know, that's, that's one example. Um, anything else? Well, it's interesting because Marquesa was born on the red carpet. It wasn't even in a store. And then they wound up with a clothing line and they could do more day wear, but they used the red carpet completely to build their brand. And also that Prada dress, I mean, Prada was in the U.S. and making sportswear, but nobody really knew what it was. And after that, Prada became a super brand. Mm. Exactly. That's, um, oh, thank you for And that's the, the second point I was going to bring up was, you know, who really knew what Prada was besides sort of dowdy leather luggage before then, or at least people in my generation. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see Uma Thurman and, you know, obviously we covered the runway collections in WWD prior to 1997, but it was sort of um, the harbinger of this turnaround for the brand and all of a sudden it became this cool, artsy, somewhat minimalistic sort of, but very artsy and bold, you know, line. And I think that really happened in part because of the traction it got from the Oscars and, and 
the impact that Uma Thurman had and basically the brand awareness that her image brought to the house of Prada. I've got a question for all of you. Um, we, I, I guess the age of the stylist and, and the, the designer line, like the, the Marquesas, the Lorenz Scotts, these lines that came directly from the red carpet, the next step was really this explosion whereby every possible event now is just worked for getting a star like, say, a Lupita Nyong'o traction. Tell me anything you'd like to say about the preparation, Merle. What, what are they doing? When do they start? Okay, let's say you're going, on the, you're going to tell your eyed. You know you're going to get nominated for an Oscar. What's an actress doing at that stage? Who's she working with? I wrote a story, um, I think a couple years ago, called The Psychology of the Dress. And the fact is, is that if you're Lupita Nyong'o, really good example, because she just exploded, won an Oscar, became a fashion star, all in one year. You know that you need an image, you need a sort of brand, and you're, nobody knows who you are, and you hire a stylist. That's the very first thing you do. Who pays? Well, if you're very lucky, the studio, with, particularly in the case of 12 Years a Slave, it knows it's going to be an Oscar movie, and so they're willing to spend the money. You know, some small movies don't have that issue. But Lupita wants to show people that she's glamorous and a star because in that movie, she's downtrodden and, you know, looking scared and not a glamorous woman at all. So she needs to turn around the image and she needs to be a glamour figure to get our attention and also to possibly get some other glamorous roles. So she develops this relationship with a stylist named Michaela Erlanger, who lives in New York, and they made each other stars. When she turned up, first of all, I would go to the Palm Springs Film Festival, which is kind of the first major event of the year. She wore this gold cocktail dress. Beautiful. Fabulous figure. I loved it. Fabulous <laughs> figure. The best color work for her skin. And beautiful makeup. And she was shy and sweet. And it's like, here's this girl we know nothing about. And she, in minutes, she's a fashion star. That was completely solidified at the Golden Globes when she wore this red-caped Ralph Lauren dress, which I saw come down the runway. And I thought, that's an interesting dress, that whole cape idea. But then you have the contrast of her skin tone. And every, nobody else really wearing red that night. Red is the loudest, most attentive color. <laughs> and so now you know at Telluride, even at Cannes, that your movie is going to be a very big deal, you immediately go into the mode of, I need to look amazing and I need to look different at every single event. Mm. Monica, what kind of intel does a stylist have to do to make sure that someone else is not wearing red? I think there was a huge kerfuffle a few years ago. Kirsten Dunst turned up in a Chanel that someone else wore. She was freaking out. It was all over the sort of fashion pages. Reese Witherspoon had worn the year before. What are they doing behind the scenes? Like, how do they have assistants going and spying? Like, what's going on? Actually, it's the design houses that really keep track. Um, I know, for instance, from working with Rachel on the book, um, Months beforehand, she's in touch with the houses in Europe to find out um, what's available, what will look good on her clients. She's seeing what's coming down the runway beforehand, or what will come down the runway. I think there is some cross-referencing, but you had the example, it was Anne Hathaway who was supposed to wear yes. Valentino, oh, yes. and at the last minute did not, and it had been announced that she was wearing Valentino, so it was credited. Right now, 
you know, journalists get, we used to get bulletins the day before and then wisely, um, the publicist for the fashion houses decided to wait until these women actually got out of the limos wearing the dresses because there were too many instances where they didn't wear it. And it was so embarrassing and mortifying to have that out there and then realize that the... Sharon Stone in a Gap turtleneck. Yeah, so she decided not to wear the dress. That actually wasn't by Gap, FYI. Yeah. It was from the Limited. They pretended oh. it was from oh. the Gap because of charity. But I think that the stylists should spend less time talking to each other because I see way too much, way too many trends on the carpet. I mean, we see it either dark greens in or this particular silhouette or peplum. It'd be so nice to see less of that. And I think there was a time when we did see more individual looks. Now it seems like everyone gets together a week beforehand and decides we're going to take the safe route. We'll all do peplums. We'll all do you know, forest green, even with jewelry, we see everybody mimicking each other. And I'm not sure exactly who's behind that. Marcy, maybe you know. I, I don't think people are getting together per se. If anything, <laughs> I still think it is very competitive and very secretive to an extent. But um, I think things just get into the fashion zeitgeist, maybe. I mean, things, some things more than they should. But um, I agree with Monica and that I do think that there needs to be more individuality on the carpet. How do we get there? <laughs> That's a really good question. You know, Kate Blanchett, no matter what she wears, has a strong fashion personality. Even if she's wearing a big lace gown, she still looks like her, the hair and makeup. I think the people with the strong personality, Charlize Theron is an amazing example. Tilda Swinton is the best example of someone with such a strong personality and it transfers to fashion and she loves fashion and so it's always going to look you know, I mean, it's not an actress's job to know what everybody else is wearing, it's the stylist's job and you know, it's become now that actresses need to be sort of like models and they need to know about fashion and yet they also need to know how to act and they need to be working Jennifer Lawrence does not have time to oh. be uh, perusing <laughs> a runway yeah. but she doesn't really care that's the thing a lot of these people don't care and so they wear something their stylist tells them to wear is trendy and why that's does not how... never work it um, never works I, I can tell you this from direct experience as can you know, we've done this so many years. You can tell when you're talking to a woman at her, standing six inches from you on the red carpet if she's uncomfortable in her dress or not. And you can also tell when she loves her dress and when she's owning that look and the way she's projecting, not just talking to me, because I don't have a camera, I have a notebook still. Um, but, you know, when you see her speaking into the camera next to you, um, she's projecting it, she's owning it. And I think that shows in the photographs. Um, so you know, and, and it might not have been a dress that she chose on her own, but you know, I think the mark of a good client-stylist relationship is that the stylist has to understand what the actress likes. And the actress has to have some sort of opinion, because if they don't, then they end up looking like an uncomfortable do they, paper doll. Do they? Do they? Some of them don't, as Merle pointed out, but I mean, they do know if they look ugly in a dress or if they don't like it. And sometimes it's too late and they still have to get out of the car. So therefore you just have a bad night. But, you know, they, it depends I, on the person. Yeah, I think more so they know. We're not doing questions yet. I <laughs> mean, when you watch um, the E-Red Carpet, you know, if Ryan Seacrest asks an actress what she's wearing, she'll tell you what, she, what Essie color she's wearing on her nails. 15. I mean, nowadays they really do know. And I think part of that is 
there's agreements made. I'm going to be sure to publicize it. Some of them are just very gracious and want to give credit, but... Yeah, I'll just write it on their wrist. <laughs> well, that's kind of refreshing. I mean, we, we've got 15 minutes, but I have, have a few more questions. I mean, I think something really interesting happened last year on the red carpet, and that was the coming of age, I would say, of Elizabeth Stewart, a fantastic stylist who has worked for the New York Times in her previous life. And it came down to her styling Sandra, Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, Julia Roberts, who else? Did it work? Did they, did it, did it, I would like your opinions. Did it work for all of them? Could you see, like, was one maybe neglected? I mean, do, can we be honest here? Um, some of those women no have incredible style, mm. and some of them don't. And um, Julia Roberts is Julia Roberts. You cannot tell her what to wear. Yeah. You know, so she looked great. She she really every event she looked very different. She was bold. She wore a leopard mini in Palm Springs. She wore a pink jumpsuit. Um, Elizabeth also dressed Kate Blanchett. Yeah, I I honestly felt it a bit lacking. I thought she had all the right labels, which Kate Blanchett's very directional. So she had on Christopher Kane, Ricardo Tisci for Givenchy, but in a way, I kind of got the feeling is is she a bit over it? I don't think it fitted. I don't think so, but I also think that you're investing the stylist with too much power and accountability. Maybe Elizabeth Stewart Why? had another option that someone decided not to go with. Right. I mean, I they can only make out. suggestions. Exactly. Yeah, they're not and dictators. Back to right. the behind-the-scenes thing that you had mentioned in the, you know, at the beginning. Um, you know, actresses do have backup dresses most of the time, okay? So sometimes they have to go on the carpet in a dress they don't love. But everyone's always got... A backup. I mean, that's just How many? red carpet one on one. Yeah, at least one. So a stylist can do all she can to bring those best choices and you know to the hotel room or the home. But at the end of the day, it is the actress who's going to reach for this one, whatever she's feeling that morning. She could have thought the night before, you know, I'm going to go with the sleek satin mermaid gown, but she wakes up in the morning and maybe she just feels like she wants the princess skirt. I mean, you just the actress, you don't know. though, and her manager and her publicist and her boyfriend and her mother and her husband. Right. It's, it's a team by committee. You know, Merle, uh, Sometimes her kids, too. Uh, another really interesting late-breaking phenomenon is that actresses who have been paid by brands, the biggies, to wear their dresses on Oscar night and for the big ceremonies like the Golden Globes, have started using those in-between affairs like the Palm Springs Film Festival or a lunch or the BAFTA cocktail to wear something a little bit more interesting. Tell us about that. Well, <laughs> I was going to say that Kate Blanchett wore Armani to the two big shows, the Golden Globes and the Oscars. Not that they weren't lovely and beautiful, but George Armani gave a million dollars to the Sydney theater that Kate Blanchett and her husband ran. Nice one. Yeah, so she was fairly obligated to do that, and yet she wore very avant-garde clothes to the SAGs and to other things, Givenchy, very different looking. So, you know, there's a lot of influence of big brands, obligations, payback, etc., but there's a bit of Erdem out there, Christopher Kane. You're seeing Roxanne Lynchich. You're seeing Mar Marcy. Rosie Asselin. Um, yeah, there's a lot of 
great new names, even designers have only been around for a season or two. So I think that there are stylists, particularly like Michaela Erlinger, who worked with Lupita and Michelle Dockery, you know, who just sort of exploded onto the scene because she had those two girls last year and it all made such an impact. You know, there are less tied to these brands because they haven't been in the industry as long as, say, an Elizabeth Stewart. So their eyes are just more open and perhaps just more fresh because they don't, they're not bound by, well, what we always did 10 years ago. And so they'll, they'll find a new designer and if they have a client who is also adventurous, then I think that's sometimes the most exciting thing that can happen. Hmm. I would just quickly, yeah, we haven't talked at all about musicians and I think yeah. the red carpet may be there to form an image. Maybe it's a brand partnership, but I think it's also become a venue for shock value. And I think yeah. that's fun. I think Rihanna has great style and she chooses up and coming designers and Lady Gaga, Miley Cyrus. I mean, this is a place when musicians don't have an album out or they're not doing, they're not touring. They can get on a red carpet wearing something outrageous and get some press. And I think it's really refreshing. I remember what MIA wore to the Grammys years ago when she was, I think, eight and a half months pregnant. I like watching the music shows for that reason. And Merle, you started something at the Hollywood Reporter, a power list issue, issues of the 25 most powerful. Tell me why you did that and what's the reaction? Are people jostling to get in there? Well, the Hollywood Reporter has a history of doing power lists, of women in the business, of lawyers. So it it kind of went part and parcel. And I remember when Janice Min said to me four years ago, we should rate the stylists. And I went, we can't do that. Why? But that was her answer. Why not? And, you know, what is your quantification of who's the number one and who's number six? We based it all on who was around during most of the year, award season in Cannes, and the best looks, and we really kind of worked out a system. In the first year, people were kind of freaked out. They didn't know it was coming, and I think they kind of resented it. The second year, they were all having their agents and publicists, and they have publicists (laughs) calling us going, you should consider so-and-so, you should consider so-and-so. And then the third year, they started saving the date so that they wouldn't have a booking that day. And now, and then... Kate Young, Leslie Freemar, Elizabeth Stewart, the last three number ones, all have deals with, you know, the H&Ms of the world. They make really strong money off these numbers. I, my final question really is, is it fun for these women? Are they having fun out there? I mean, I would say half the time, no. It's like a big deal. But is it fun? I think for some of them, it is. It's like, women who like to go out on a date and women who don't. I mean, I think some of them really enjoy the ritual of getting dressed up and they enjoy the attention. I think some of them, no way. I remember interviewing Julie Christie once and she's disgusted by it. I mean, hates every single second of it and I revere her style, but I think you, you, there are two camps, right? I, I agree and you know, it's, I think it's all good and fun when you're getting ready at home for four hours with champagne and your kids and your boyfriend. And it's probably fun the first 15 minutes of the red carpet, but what a lot of people don't realize is it takes about 50 minutes to get down the entire red carpet. So it's maybe not so fun for you or your feet by the end. And then you're also sitting in a live theater for three hours, and then you're then having to go to a, the governor's ball and, and possibly do more. lose. Exactly. <laughs> so and it's all good and fun in the beginning. Underpinnings. Oh, that's another thing. 
you need those. It should be more fun, though. I hope yeah. it can become fun again, because I think there was a time when Cher showed up and that Bob Mackie and whoever was sitting behind her cursed her. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, actually. <laughs> it was Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. yeah. Um, it would be wonderful to see. And she actually, Audrey Hepburn loved it. <laughs> so tiny, I can only imagine. Okay, that, that, it's been delightful. Uh, Mary, I just want to say thank you again to Mary Ta for the wonderful and DM. Thank you.